It's 6.50 a.m. September 11th, 2000. September 11th, 2021. Outside, there's as little traffic as I've heard in a long time since less than during the pandemic when there were helicopters overhead. Those who know me and have talked to me enough know how much I complain about how loud it is, the firehouse that's across the street from me. They test these uh, chainsaws, the sirens go off. I hope that people, when they hear me talk about them, hear that I'm joking at the complaints, in large part because of the plaque. on this firehouse that lists the, the men who they train their lives to enter burning buildings not towering infernos and it's hard to imagine what it took to look at a World Trade Center on fire. Everyone running away. And for them to go in, I wonder, did they help anyone get out? Are there people walking around today who are alive because these men walked into that building This isn't what I intended to, to record. To look at it, I, I sometimes wonder what it's like to just, what was the last thing that they saw? Some 15 years later, we'll just say about five years ago, I went to West Point for the first time. General Lloyd Austin brought me there. He's now the Secretary of Defense. Accompanying a four-star general means you meet, well, basically anyone you want. And I met the cadets. This was 15 years after 9-11. And they were still signing up, registering, putting their lives on the line to fight in wars that anyone knew were misguided. And however misguided our leadership, they knew, and how, as divided a country as we have right now, knowing that half the people that they're going to defend disagree with them. And they're fighting for freedom. I started to record this my intent was not to get overwhelmed like this. Uh, just before recording, I opened up my shades and looked across the street and I saw two firefighters walking into the building, to the firehouse. Already there are a few flowers and bouquets up. Uh, right now, just below the, uh, the plaque. I guess they have to not put them in front of the driveway because the firefighters might have to go out and fight a fire. 
one of the firefighters just walked into the building. The other one looked at the flowers for a minute. And I expect it. Later today, there'll be bagpipes. My 9-11, and I, I had to say this to put it in context of what these people did. My September 11th begins roughly a decade before. Up until then, school was, you know, I did well. But around then, I'd come back from a year abroad, a year off from school. And my values had developed. And I decided to major in physics. This was my junior year. It was a difficult decision because most people who choose physics start in their high school. They know from the beginning they want to do physics. But I was a kid growing up. I was nerdy. I didn't want to do more of what made things difficult for me socially. But eventually I decided I loved physics so much that I had to do it. And I thought, Galileo, Newton, Einstein, Feynman, I wanted to be the next in line to discover something great about the universe. And I loved the field. I loved solving hard problems, the beauty of nature. Over the years, I had gone to graduate school, but then became disillusioned in the field and realized I didn't want to keep doing physics. But it was a challenging time. I didn't know what else to do. People in physics either stay in physics, maybe go into engineering, maybe go to Wall Street. And by chance, and this is the mid-90s, some friends approached me and said, hey, we want to start a company. We want to join and do something with us. And there's a whole lot of stories there. But in the end, I came up with the invention of being able to make the, a linear zoetrope, the uh, technology that I, I wrote the patent for and eventually became the company Submedia that we could put displays on the walls of subway tunnels that when trains went by, the people inside could see what looked like a movie screen outside the subway car window hovering there. It took years and years of work, had the idea in 96, started writing the patent in 98 or filed for the patent in 98, got our first funding in 99, our first contract with Subway Systems in, I think, 2000, 2000. Got, that was our big partnerships to put up the displays. Our first one was in Atlanta with MARTA, the Metropolitan Atlanta Rapid Transit Authority, I think. We had competition between Coca-Cola and Nike, two um, huge advertisers, to be the first advertisers, the debut advertisers in our display. We had a team of 17 people, anticipating growth because subway systems have tremendous real estate in the centers of cities, the most densely packed areas in all the major capitals of the world. And we did technology that almost uniquely put us there. We had some competition. And we had investors coming in to help us build throughout the world. The late 90s, early 2000s, there was a huge amount of advertising going on. And we had great potential. We got our funding in 2000, the contract in 2000. And in early 2001, we started planning with our PR firm when we would put our display up. And there's lots of things factoring into it of when the contracts were, 
Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola eventually was our debut advertiser, their interests. And with a PR firm, and also when the funding came in and all sorts of legal things. And with a PR firm in the summer of 2001, we looked at what's the best date to launch our display. It should be a Tuesday. Tuesdays apparently are the best days to, for media on that day and on Wednesdays. And it should be towards the end of the summer, but not yet the beginning of the fall. So we have these invitations that we sent out to all of our investors and, and friends to say, here's the text of the postcards that we sent to everybody. On one side, it said, all aboard, with an image of the Dasani water that was being advertised in the display. It says, partners and friends, please join us for the U.S. debut of in-tunnel motion picture advertising. In conjunction with Coca-Cola and the Metropolitan Atlanta Rapid Transit Authority, Submedia cordially invites you to the historic launch of our revolutionary medium in Atlanta, Georgia, 10.30 a.m., September 11, 2001, at the concourse level of the Marta Dunwoody Station. For directions, hotel information, and other details, email info at sub-media.com. The night before, or really actually the morning of September 11, 2001, I was in the tunnels at the display. We had to, well, there was a meeting with the fire marshal, which got postponed, but there was putting all the cards in, in the, the image cards into the boxes, which we weren't going to be able to do in time. And we had the guys who were, I was supposed to watch while the guys put the stuff in. I started helping out, and they were thinking, we were so... We had so much to do in so little time that the guys who were paying to put the, the, the cards in who work in subway tunnels, they were like, well, we can't do this. And I was there and I'm like leaning out the back of the truck trying to help with like the next box to help make things possible. And at the beginning of the, of the shift, they were looking at me like, who's this guy? What does he think he's doing? Like, we can't actually get this any more done than we can't finish this in time. But I'm just doing whatever I can to make it work. Then a couple of them start helping me and then a couple of them start helping more and helping more. And then we get into this rhythm and we start working faster and faster and faster. And as we realize that we're like reaching the end of the, uh, the display with the clock ticking before the first train will come through because the train stop, started at, I think, 5.30. And we're going as fast as we can, faster as we can. We think, maybe we can make this. And we actually made it. We got all the cards in the, in the display just in time for – we actually had enough time to take this high rail vehicle, this truck with little uh, train wheels on the bottom to drive once through and see the full display on before the first train came through. And then we had just enough time to get back off. I went back to the hotel. I was sharing the hotel room with the other co-founder, Matt, and I woke him up to say it works. And it was then just about, it must've been just about 6.30 a.m., just a little bit before when I started recording this. I went to sleep. We woke up. We were getting ready for this big day. Of course, it was the same for me as it was for everybody. Tower one, was this a disaster? What went wrong? Tower two, this is terrorism. The Pentagon, obviously, call off this launch. We'd been working on it for years. And at a time like that, What do, we, what do we have? We, we have our family, we have our friends, we have the people closest to us. And of course we realize that at that moment 
many people are losing their families themselves. We had got investment in that company valued above $30 million. I forget the details. When the company started, Matt and I shared between the two of us the entire company. Now, as investors came in and we, employees got shares, investors got shares, I probably had $10 million in submedia at that time. We had a working display ready to launch in a major city with one of the world's great advertisers, with another one of the world's great advertisers waiting in the wings to do a future one. By 11 a.m., it was inevitable that within about a year and a half, I had to resign and was worth, I'd lost everything. Not only I lost everything in terms of the money, I had intended to go into, originally into physics, into, be, into what I considered the most noble calling to find out about nature. You know, if someone says to you, can you name a genius in history? You might pick Shakespeare, Mozart. A lot of people pick Einstein. A lot of people pick Newton. Scientists, especially physicists, are up there. And I gave all that up to start my company, which at the beginning I thought, I'm creating this technology. I'm developing something. I'm bringing into the world something that had never been there before. And it's really a beautiful thing. When we would do studies in all the subway systems where we would go, we'd ask the riders, what do you think of this? All of them, except one. I think we asked thousands and thousands of people through agencies that do market research. They all would say, this makes the subway tunnel better. And we'd share the revenue with the subway system. So in my view, we were improving the world. People liked what they saw. The revenue would go to the subway authorities. So it was helping public transit but now that it was gone I mean you couldn't bring a wrench into a subway tunnel now certainly not in the United States we called up the advertising and the Coca-Cola was I, I believe that we were the first new advertising since 9-11 which came in October of that year but there was no revenue and there was no investment and the company we had fumes to go on it was a devastating experience over the next year and a half before I was kicked out of the company that I'd founded with nothing to go forward with. I would consider it a gross insult for me to compare what I lost to the people who went into the towers, who signed up for decades afterward to defend this nation, to defend freedoms, however misguided the leadership was. I would not compare my loss to their losses. It is nothing in comparison. I'm living, by any measure, a great life right now. I love what I do. I have a beautiful apartment. I've gotten rid of a lot of stuff in order to live a more simple life. One of the big things that sustains me, Viktor Frankl, I hope that you've read Man's Search for Meaning, He was captured by the Nazis, his family killed, he didn't know this, and he lived in Auschwitz, in several different concentration camps, and eventually Auschwitz. He lived through and talked about what made it meaningful for him. I don't know if this is a fair thing to say, but I think even 9-11 was very small compared to the Holocaust, which he lived through, which the innocent people who were killed in the Holocaust I think that my, my father's parents, my grandmother, my grandfather, who grew up Jewish in Poland, 
before coming to the United States, before World War II, they must have played in playgrounds and not known people, family members and friends and community members who did not leave Poland and would have been killed up the block from where I lived were Gabby and Werner, who escaped the Holocaust and came to America during the war. And growing up, I went to a Jewish day school in which, in, in the wake of, this would have been a generation or two after the Holocaust and World War II, but it was daily. We knew that we had, we were in the wake of that. On my mom's side, my grandfather served in the Navy in the USS Pensacola in the Pacific. I understand he didn't see action. He didn't fight. I don't really know. That's just what my mom told me. A major part of her identity was being the adult child of an alcoholic. And I've wondered, did his experience in the war lead to his alcoholism? I don't know. But the wake of that lives on in all of us. Even the Holocaust, in terms of numbers of people suffering and dying, is small compared to our environmental problems already today. 10 million people per year die just from breathing polluted air, pollution being one part of our environmental problems. That's Other things happen from what people eat and drink that's poisonous, from sea level rise, people displaced from their homes. I had on this podcast a guest uh, was it Robert Schoonover, who worked in, in the State Department in security and talked about people displaced from, communities displaced from their homes in Central America. When they leave the, their homes and go to new places that can't support them, but where else can they go? They're crossing these borders. This is war situations happen. People are killed and raped. Already, this is in the past, and our environmental problems have barely started. Even the Atlantic slave trade, in terms of numbers, over centuries, tens of millions of people died. Even those numbers are small compared to what we're seeing on an annual basis today, and that it will grow and grow and grow to hundreds of millions, to possibly billions, if we don't act. Those who sacrificed themselves to enter those towers, possibly to save a few people. Those who enlisted in the military to defend this nation, all of them acted, I believe, to serve others, certainly not for themselves. They were not benefiting from these things. They were sacrificing, but I don't think that they were losing something. I think that they were gaining something. They chose to do something, to serve others, to help them. We today, all of us, have the opportunity to serve others. Now, without a, a Hitler or Mussolini or bin Laden, we can't point to our environmental problems and say, they're the bad guys. We can't even point to Exxon or McDonald's or H&M, these big polluters, and say they're the bad ones because they're serving us. We're buying stuff from them. We are driving that system. Every time that we pay for something that causes more extraction of fossil fuels, of oil, of coal, of the minerals to keep these things going, we're complicit in it. We're driving that system. 
What's driving it is not evil people. It's our ignorance of science. It's available. We can find the stuff out, but we choose not to. We say, what can I do? What I do doesn't matter. Only governments and corporations can make a difference on the scale that matters. This is ignorance. This is self-serving, fatuous, specious, non-logic that feeds our self-indulgence, our sloth, our gluttony. Recently, we had storms that went up and down the East Coast. You've seen the videos, perhaps, of people's stuff out on the streets. Stuff was, their homes are destroyed. We're ruined. And there's stuff out on the street for garbage people to pick up. It's mostly junk. It's a lot of disposable stuff. And I don't want to take away that people's homes were destroyed, their lives torn apart. But 9-11 gives us context. Whom can we help by not restoring all that junk that requires these super long supply chains, requiring, you know, there's that book, I don't know if you've seen this book called Bullshit Jobs. That's the title of the book. It talks about people who do all this work that is meaningless. And we have a lot of bullshit stuff, cargo on ships. I think most cargo on most ships is probably bullshit stuff. Stuff we don't need, stuff that's not worth anything, stuff that doesn't make our lives better, stuff that is what is causing the deaths of these people, the 10 million people who die from the polluted air and more who die from the polluted water and so forth. Whom can we help? We don't need to dive into buildings or to storm Normandy to help people today. What does it take? It's not sacrifice. On the contrary, it's eating vegetables instead of takeout. It's having one child. And I've known families of all sizes and I've never seen any less love in a family with one child than a family with multiple children. It means instead of flying to visit your family, living near your family in the first place so you don't have to fly to get back to see them again. How many 9-11s do we need to be complicit in to decide to stop. I look back at what I was doing then. The Submedia displays, we were selling Coca-Cola, which I have not drunk Coca-Cola. I've not paid any money for a Coca-Cola product since during the apartheid era. We boycotted products and companies that were doing business with the South African government in order to get them to stop. So I was actually selling a product that I would not consume. And for that matter, Nike I've not bought a Nike product since childhood because when I learned about the sweatshops, and as far as I can tell, they're still doing it. So I've not bought Coca-Cola or Nike since the 80s, maybe early 80s. And there I was looking to make money, selling, look, as much as I said people who saw the displays liked the displays, I had to ask myself, did the world need more displays, more advertising? Do we need to put it in subway tunnels where they couldn't escape it? That was a big advertising. That was a big, for us, something that would sell was to say, we have a captive audience for you, to, for the advertisers. So I was advertising. I was invading people's personal space, advertising products I myself would not and have not bought in decades and will probably never buy. In fact, I came across recently in my neighborhood, this, people throw stuff away 
and I see like at the end of every month, the amount of stuff being thrown away, not because of floods, just because people are moving and they get rid of stuff. They throw stuff away. And I saw a Nike shirt and I, I just could not, I took it to Goodwill, but I could not wear it myself, even free, freely given, taken away from the trash. Perfectly good. It was perfectly fine. It was like this big pile of like clean trash. So I was lured by this money to make tens of millions of dollars. So when I lost $10 million in minutes and my future, I don't want to take away from outdoor advertising. It's a field that it goes back to, I think they've, we've Roman and maybe even earlier archaeological finds of basically billboards back then. So it's been around for thousands of years. I don't want to take away from that, but it was not, when, when that $10 million went away and Samita's future was in doubt and really never recovered, I realized that what I had was a company, I had connections in an outdoor, outdoor advertising business that I didn't want to be in that business. I'd given up being the next Einstein. That's what I envisioned for myself. So what keeps us going? What kept me going was certainly Viktor Frankl and being able to say what happens out there, we can always choose our response to it. And where does that come from? It comes from our values. It comes from each other, other people, the people in our lives that we care about and serving them and allowing them to serve us, community, each other. The money, in some ways, how else can I see but that if I'd had $10 million, would I just be rich right now and not caring? Would I have gotten a bunker in New Zealand to protect myself when all these problems happen? Instead, I'm making it my life's mission to reverse course what every, what in 1988, the New York Times put it on the front page that the earth was warming and we had the clear signs that it was there. And anyone who says Exxon knew or that the oil companies knew what was going on and they still did it, we know what's going on today. And we've known for generations what's been going on and we keep doing it. We can't undo September 11th, 2001, but we can prevent future horror, future terror, to some poor loser who lives in some community in some third world nation where everyone dies in their 40s because of the pollution, because of the poison, so that we can wear fast fashion, an average of something like five times. We used to wear clothing for our whole lives. Now we wear it five times and throw it away. And then it gets sent to some other third world nation where it pollutes their rivers and waterways of this stuff that we wore a couple times. Does that poor loser care as they look at their mother dying or their father dying in their 40s so that we could look pretty for a little while before throwing that thing away and looking pretty in another thing that we don't need these things? Do they care that it wasn't a burning tower with an airplane that went into it that's killing everyone in their community at such young ages? I don't think that it matters to them. The immediate cause, but that we can prevent it, which is why I make working on the environment everything in my life. It is 
the, this is the opportunity. We cannot change the past, but we can prevent future suffering. And this suffering that is, we are causing those of us in the overdeveloped world. Have I made too much of a stretch on September 11th, 2021, 20 years later? To connect that to, I don't think so. I think that these disasters that we live through teach us what to live for. And what do we live for if not to help others, to prevent their suffering, to give them a chance to have the life that we want for ourselves and for our loved ones? It doesn't come from fast fashion. It doesn't come from flying all over the world to see whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want it. And it is not sacrifice. It is not walking into a burning, towering inferno to eat vegetables and fruit, not get takeout, to stop flying all over the place, to have smaller families, to carpool, in a couple hours, I'll start crying again when the bagpipes go. Well, I don't have any big ending. But I wanted to share some September 11th thoughts on the 20th anniversary of September 11th, 2001.